Well, friends, if you haven't already, would you turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 22? Luke chapter 22 will be our key text today. We go back to our occasional sermon series, Following Jesus. This is like my 180-something sermon from Following Jesus. And uh, because it's vacation Bible school time, I get to preach with Simba up here, a chimpanzee and a sloth and a hippo and a a, a chameleon. Uh, It's a veritable zoo. But um, yeah, Luke chapter 22 and back to our sermon series of Following Jesus. The next 11 sermons you'll hear me preach will be from following Jesus, uh, leading right up to the fall. And then, uh, um, you know, we'll have one week at least where I might be gone and somebody else will preach to you in the middle of the summer. But our summer will be following Jesus. So isn't it good to know we can follow Jesus through the summer? Can I get a thumbs up? That's a joke, right? I'm making a joke because we follow Jesus all the time, but our sermon series. So my title this morning is Disbelieving Jesus. Not believing Jesus. When we think about belief, we really believe what we want to believe, don't we? Nobody can make us believe something. They can give us evidence. They can try to persuade us. But they can't change our minds. We have to change our minds. And sometimes it's because we've learned by watching someone else, we say, mm, I don't want to do that, or that's the right way, or that's the wrong way. Other times it's because we hurt enough, some outside pressure causes us to say, I've got to believe something different, do something different. But there are times when we don't want to believe something and we're not going to change at all. And it might be because we're stubborn, it might be because we're just ignorant, we need more information, not an ignorant in a negative way. It might be because we are foolish, ignorant in a negative way. And it may be even because we're sinful, that we're choosing to do things contrary to evidence and contrary to what God has revealed in His Word. And so we want to consider those ideas of belief when we look at this interaction today with Jesus and the Sanhedrin. Your context, if you were to go back and read it, uh, would be from Mark chapter 14, verse 53 and following, and uh, Matthew chapter 26, verse 57 and following. Interestingly enough, both Mark and Matthew tell this same story in 13 different verses apiece. They're not identical, but 13 verses of Scripture, whereas Luke tells it in just seven, the seven I'm going to concentrate on. And the reason I chose the Luke version is because it's focused on one question, And that's the question of Christology. Remember, I talked to you last week about all the different ologies of the Bible when we use fancy terminology, right? And Christology, like you might imagine, is the study of Jesus. Christology is what it is. In the study of Jesus, Christology has one question to answer and one question only. And that's this. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And that's what's at the root of our scripture today. What we see happening and where we pick up the story in our following Jesus sermon series again is that Jesus has been betrayed in the garden, has been arrested by the Roman soldiers, and has been now taken from one place to the other to the other in the middle of the night, trying to find evidence to put him to death as the Jewish people would like to because he's a threat to their religious establishment and power. But as the Romans are going, we've got to follow these laws, and has he broken any laws? So he's back and forth from one trial or one interview to another. 
And so here we have in the middle of the night this scene portrayed in which Luke combines two different Sanhedrin meetings so that we can see concentrated the answer to this question, who is Jesus? I told you to open your Bibles, but I didn't open mine yet, so now I've got mine open. And if you're able to stand with me in the honor of reading God's Word, would you do so as we read Luke chapter 22, verse 66 through 71, the end of the chapter. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together. And Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I ask you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you are right in saying that I am. Then they said, we don't need any more testimony. Or why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Let's pray. Father in heaven, in these few short verses, we know that you can teach us by your Holy Spirit. And we come together today to learn what it means to follow Jesus, who he is, and who he's called us to be. And we pray now that by your Spirit, we'd hear from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Your sermon outline today is a little bit different. It looks similar in the fact that there's, you know, Helvetica font in a bold print with the scripture references behind it in parentheses, and then there's a question in a handwriting font that follows it. But notice the second um, bold print line there starts with an ellipsis, the three little dots. Because it's a continuation of the first one. And notice the third one starts a new sentence. And then it's a continuation. So you've got three different couplets here with two parts apiece. And I'll highlight those as we go along because I see that happening in the interchange between Jesus and the Sanhedrin here. And your first point in your outline there in bold print is when minds are made up already. When minds are made up already. They've been running Jesus back and forth through the night. Now it's daybreak, and this reference to the council of elders is a clear reference, a synonym to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leading council that was supposed to determine religious law and religious practice, but also the law of their land within the umbrella of what the Romans would let them to do. It was both the chief priest and the leaders of the people were gathered together and they led Jesus before them in verse 66. And what does it say there in verse 67? They confront him. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Now, Luke omits what you find in Mark and Matthew, which is where they bring false witnesses against him. Luke is focused on that one question, the main issue, who is Jesus? And you notice they say, if you are the Christ, tell us. Your Bible might read a little bit differently, but if it captures an us or they asked, it may say, that's right, because it's the plural. It's the group as a whole, all of them are asking Jesus, tell us, which means that all of them will be implicated for their part in Jesus' crucifixion. The question that follows for us to consider is, where may I be wrong about Jesus? 
When minds are made up already, they've already made up their mind. They know what Jesus has said, and even though this is a trial, notice I'm using my air quotes, they've already made up their mind. They're not looking for evidence to change their minds. They're looking for evidence to confirm what they already believe and just enough evidence to be able to condemn Jesus before the Romans. You see, they knew that if he said he was a king and he would be a political threat to the Romans, that's what the Romans needed in order to condemn him to death. Granted, they had the theological side as well that they're working on. So they're looking for this evidence, and they're not asking him to prove it to them other than to say it with his own mouth as a witness. Some of us may be wrong about Jesus as well. You have to ask yourself, well, when have I been wrong about anything? Well, I don't know. Think back to the last 24 hours. Anybody been wrong about something in the last 24 hours? Yeah, I have. Um, I'm sure my family can tell you more than once, right? Being wrong about something like, you know, how to do something around the house or a procedure at work or how to deal with a difficult person is one thing. But being wrong about who is Jesus is quite another If we think he's not the Messiah, if we think he won't forgive, if we think he doesn't have grace no matter what we've done, there's lots of ways that people can think incorrectly about Jesus. But notice these guys. Going back to our text, the leaders of the people already had their minds made up. And so the second part of your couplet, the second bold face print is this. Their reasoning with them is of no use. You see how those two parts go together when minds are made up, reasoning with them is of no use. You've met people like that before, right? You can tell by the way they talk. You can tell by the set of their face or the set of their jaw, their mind is made up. And nothing you can say will change their mind. They know what they know, and they're not listening to you anymore. They're only listening for what they want to hear. Notice what they said there in the end of verse 67. Jesus, excuse me, said, If I tell you, you will not believe me. Don't you love how Jesus calls them out? Jesus doesn't let them get away with anything. He says, I know what you're after. And even if I tell you what you want to know, you won't believe that I am who I am. If I tell you, you won't believe me. They had no desire to interact, no desire to learn. They only had the desire to condemn Jesus. In my volunteer experience at McPhee Elementary with first graders helping them read, I had one little gal, and I'm just going to call her Little Miss, because she was Little Miss Prissy sometimes. And Little Miss, it seemed to me, had made up her mind that she didn't want to try. You've probably met people like that before. You've probably been a person like that from time to time. But it was amazing when I could get her to try and get her to focus, I could see that she would learn words. She was as smart as any other kid in the classroom. And so from one page to the next, you know how children's book repeat words and things like that? You could see, okay, we sounded it out on this page, but the next page, she got it. And I'm there like going, yes, she got it. I'm trying not to overreact because I don't want to freak her out, you know. This grown-up she hardly knows is getting excited. And she's learning words, and she's getting through the book, and I'm like, yes. And then the next week, I come back, and she's got this attitude, like, I'm not even going to try. You can't teach me. And I'm like, well, come on. You know, it's guided reading time. I'm here to guide you. Let's get a book and read. No, I don't want to. I mean, and she could just be so, 
I'm like, where did she learn this? And then she gets this kind of behavior about her and all kinds of stuff. I'm like, woo, her home life must not be the best. It made me want to pray for her. And I asked some of you that know me and pray with me to pray for her. And we did pray for her and we saw some improvement. But my point is this. It's almost like she had her mind made up that she didn't want to learn or that she couldn't learn. That's one thing when we're talking about a school subject a procedure at work. It's another thing when we're talking about Jesus. If we've made up our mind and closed off Jesus in our mind and say, I know everything there is to know about Jesus and he's in this box and there's no more I can learn and I'm done with Jesus. Your question there asks, how closely do I listen to Jesus? You see, they weren't listening to him. He had already said everything he needed to say, but they didn't want to hear that. They, were, they had checked out all piece of evidence in order to condemn him. They were done. They had checked out. All they wanted was a little. But Jesus was like, I've got so much more to give you. You've got to listen to learn. You've got to think about what's being said. You've got to ask questions. You've got to combine information. You've got to process A good teacher helps, yes, and good questions from a good teacher help. But no one can make you learn. No one can change your mind. You've got to engage. You've got to think. You've got to be willing to not know and willing to be challenged in order that you might learn, in order that you might grow. So we need to ask ourselves that question. How closely do I listen to Jesus? Do I read my Bible every day? Do I pray every day and ask for God's guidance? Do I seek his face in the circumstances of life? That I'm listening to him for his guidance? Or is my mind already made up too? Friends, as we go on with our scripture, you see that first couplet, my mind's made up, reasonings of no use. The second one begins with your third bold point there. If you have tried conversation already, that's the next part. If you have tried conversation already, you know there's certain people in certain situations where because it's so important, it can't be one and done. You have to talk to them more than once. And particularly if there's a conflicted point or they're not wanting to learn even though they need to learn, they're not wanting to try to understand even though you know they need to. Look at verse 68. Verse 68, Jesus still speaking. And he said, and if I asked you, you would not answer. If I asked you, you would not answer. So that's continuation of the last part of verse 67, right? If I tell you, you wouldn't believe me. And if I asked you, you wouldn't answer. He's saying, you're just wanting something from me, but you don't want a conversation here. You just want condemnation here. Jesus is kindly, with just a few words, calling them on their bad behavior. When words matter and a misstep may be misrepresented, like in a court of law or in a conflicted situation, Jesus was being wise in what he was saying. They were being wise, even though they were a bit nefarious in their process as well. But let's ask the question there for our third major point. And that's, what has Jesus challenged me about? Jesus is really putting a challenge to them. He's saying, you don't want to believe me. You don't care. And if I asked you, 
you wouldn't uh, answer. So he's challenging them. What does Jesus challenge you about? Because as we go back in time and then we say that's what was happening then, here's what we can learn from it and come across the bridge to where we sit today. What does Jesus challenge you about? Maybe today there's something that you know that you should do in order to obey God that you're resisting. Or maybe you're fearful. Maybe you need some more faith. And Jesus has already given you all the information you need. He's given you all the encouragement you need, all the knowledge you need. You just need to take that step. Jesus challenged them. Jesus challenges us today. Let's move on with the second half of that couplet where it says, you may need to be diplomatic. Now, what we see, really, even though this is a confrontation, is that Jesus is diplomatic with his language in verse 69. You may need to be diplomatic. You know, around here, um, is Silvana here today? She's not here. I can talk about her then. No, I'd say the same thing. I have seen few people in my personal experience that are as well-worded and diplomatic as Silvana Aaron. Can I get an Amen. I mean, she can, uh, you know, try to talk you into doing something you didn't think you knew how to do. And she does it in such a nice, encouraging way. And I'm not making fun of her. I mean, I'm uh, honestly impressed because I know she's got my best motives, the church's best motives. But she's always so kind and gracious in the way she presents something to me and you. And when she has to be firm, she's appropriately firm. Uh, When she can be humorous, she's humorous. I mean, she's really quite something else. And I've said to her before, you know, if the United States ever needs an you know, ambassador to Pakistan, I think you need to go. I mean, you know, or somewhere. She could be an ambassador. She's diplomatic that way of being to the point, but in a nice way. Jesus is doing the same thing here. Let's look at verse 69. Now that we have Silvana in our minds, right? Jesus still speaking in verse 69. He says, but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. Hey, wait a second. He just said, run it back. They asked him, if you're the Christ, tell us. He says, if I tell you, you won't believe me. Then he says, and if I asked you, you wouldn't answer. But then what does he do? In a diplomatic way, indirectly, he answers their question. He says, from now on, meaning there's about to be a change in the Christ Christology. That he's been here with them ministering for three years. And now he's saying... From now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the Mighty One. In other words, he's saying, I'm about to be crucified, and I'm about to be resurrected, and I'm about to spend the millennia in heaven until I can come back to earth in the future and get my believers and take them to be with me. That's what he's saying. He says, from now on, the Son of Man, referring to himself, his favorite self-designation to mask in a way The fact that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah. He didn't want to straight up answer them. That's why I'm saying he's being diplomatic. He's not being in their face. He's not putting out an incendiary tweet that's going to light everybody up and have them mad at him. He's coming around the back door to answer their question in a way that they go, does he say what we think he's saying? You know what? We'll find out in a minute that they know he's saying What do you think he's saying? Look at your question there for that one. What do I believe about Jesus? What do I believe? Oh, am I in the wrong one, Sam? 
I am. Yep. Have I accepted Jesus as God's son? Sorry. I flipped a page ahead on my notes. Jesus is saying, I am the son of man. The son of man is the son of God. And he uses these phrases for his role that they're different, not synonymous, but they're similar for who he is. And so each and every one of us needs to ask, okay, if Jesus is presenting himself here as the Messiah to this council judging him, what about in my mind, my council judging him? In the book of John, in chapter 8, verse 23 and 24, Jesus is speaking in another setting, and he says this, You are from below, I am from above. You belong to this world, I do not. That is why I said that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. Jesus clearly said there in John 8, that unless you trust me as your Savior, you're going to die in your sins and go to hell for eternity. And it begs that question for us, have I accepted Jesus as God's son? Who scripture reveals him to believe? be? Have I believed him personally? So your outline, you've got that. If you tried conversation already, you may need to be diplomatic. That's our third and fourth bolded points. Let's move on to our fifth bolded point. And that fifth bolded point is sometimes you have to concede. Sometimes you just have to say, This isn't going anywhere. I can't argue this point anymore. I've tried everything I know how to try. I I, I just have to stop. I have to surrender. And it's not that they won and I lost. It's just that we have to say, time out. This is done. Sometimes you have to concede. Look at verse 70. They all asked, are you the son of God? When he said son of man, they know what he's talking about, right? Are you the son of God? Are you then the son of God? And he replied, you are right in saying I am. Now, we don't get that right. I didn't read it right. Let me say it the way Jesus said it and the way it's written in Greek. You say that I am. That you in the Greek is emphatic. In other words, Jesus isn't admitting before this council. He's putting their words in their mouth to say who he is. Why would he do that? Because of what was going on there. It was almost as if he was saying to them, you've recognized that I am the Messiah, even though you don't want to fully admit it. He knew he was the Messiah. He's not trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. He's not trying to lie to them. He's not trying to be disingenuous. He's not trying to you know, skirt the truth or anything like that. He knows who he is, but he wanted to say, and it's written emphatically in the Greek, you say that I am. He's putting it back on them. He's saying it's not by my testimony that I am the Christ. It's by your testimony I am the Christ. So that even as they were condemning them, him, they would be condemning themselves. I don't know about you, but I think that's something. So even as Jesus concedes the argument and seeks to bring it to a close here, he's putting it back on them. Your question asks, what do I believe about Jesus? They didn't want to admit that Jesus was God's son. They didn't want to admit that Jesus was the way to eternal life. They didn't want to admit he was the Messiah. 
But what do you believe about Jesus personally? You're in church, so maybe you've already believed Jesus is your personal Savior and Lord. The most of you have, but some of you may have not. And some of you may have grown up in a church that taught you a religion about Jesus rather than a relationship with Jesus. Some of you may have grown up in a church that taught you about guilt rather than about grace. Or maybe the life you've lived have led you that way. Interestingly enough, a LifeWay study in 2014 told us what most of our neighbors believe, and they put a term on it, a philosophical term. You ready for this one? You could write it down. The majority of Americans believe in what is broadly termed moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Let me explain. The findings on salvation, they say, are distressing, especially when so many of these responses come from people who identify as evangelicals or Catholics. Most Americans, 71%, 71%, that's including uh, black Protestants and Catholics, say m- people must contribute some effort towards their own salvation. Two-thirds, 64% of all, say that in order to find peace with God, people have to take the first step, and then God responds to them with grace. That's exactly contrary to Scripture. God takes the first step towards us, not us towards Him. The idea that Christianity teaches that salvation comes through keeping a moral code is prevalent today. Even a sociologist, Christian Smith, describes America's religious views as moralistic therapeutic deism, a worldview that he explains in five statements. Here they are. That a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life. That's deism. That God set the world spinning and just goes, okay, whatever happens, happens. That's what most of our neighbors believe and some of you may believe. That's wrong. The second thing is that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. And that's taught by the Bible in most religion. That's the moralistic part. As long as you're a good person, you're going to get to heaven or eternity or afterlife. You notice I'm using lots of air quotes because that's what people believe. The third part is that the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. That's the therapeutic part, moralistic therapeutic deism. Think about it. Most people want to have a happy life, a well-balanced life. The fourth part is that God doesn't need to be particularly involved in one's life except when needed to resolve a problem. Now we see that deistic worldview coming in. The deism that God's out there and I don't need him and he doesn't need me. He's just there to make me happy. The fifth part is that good people go to heaven when they die. Salvation's accomplished through their own morality, their own behavior. Moralistic, therapeutic, deism. Whether they know the term or not, that's what most of Americans believe, and that's what many of us may believe as well. But when we counter that with the Word of God, and we consider what we believe about who Jesus is, and how grace works, and there's nothing we can do to earn it or deserve it, but God loves us simply because we are, not because of what we do, We see that there's a different way to understand that. That next point on your outline finishes the couplet. And so the beginning of that couplet was sometimes you have to concede. And the sixth bold point is even if they had their minds made up. Jesus knew from the very beginning they had their minds made up. They were looking to condemn him. He puts it back on them, the proclamation in this exchange of him being the Messiah, God's son. 
by saying that phrase that we talked about a moment ago, that you are right in saying that I am. And so they recognize this in verse 71. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips. They heard him saying he was the Messiah, even though he said, you're the one that says that I'm the Messiah, putting it back on them. Think about what John said in, or Jesus said in John 12, verse 44, 46. He says, whoever believes in me, believes not just in me, but in the one who sent me. Whoever looks at me is looking, in fact, at the one who sent me. I am the light come into the world so that all who believe in me won't stay any longer in the dark. Jesus came into the world as light to dispel darkness. Your question for application, your last fill in the blank point here is who do I know who doesn't believe in Jesus? When I say that, I mean believe Jesus is God's son and they must trust in him in order to receive eternal salvation. Who do you know in your life that doesn't believe in Jesus? What we see from this exchange today is those conversations are not always going to be easy. Those conversations may ultimately end up going nowhere because that person doesn't want to believe in Jesus. So the question really becomes, how do you live your life in relation to a person like that? I think the answer is what most of you would know by just your logic and being reasonable, rational people. You got to continue to love them. You got to continue to live like Christ. And continue to kindly point them to Jesus when you can. You can't change their mind, but you can continue to live following him. Unfortunately, there'll be more in this life that disbelieve Jesus as God's son than believe him. But we are commissioned and empowered to live a life that points them to Jesus no matter whether they've got their mind made up or not. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that your word challenges us and that Jesus in this passage of Scripture, as short as it was, gives us an example of how to engage our own minds and thinking about who he is and how to engage, even disengage others to think about who he is. So God, we thank you that you teach us through your word. We pray that if there's anyone here who needs to trust Christ as their savior today, confessing their sinfulness, committing their life to follow him, they do that. We pray that the rest of us that are already followers of Jesus, whatever it is you've convicted us of, we would confess and we would seek obedience. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.